I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome back to Last Week in Brexit. This weekend with two rather more nervous-looking <laughs> individuals in Alex Davis. Hi, Alex. I'm all right. And Christian, how are you, mate? Hello. Uh, right, we're going to get into all sorts today. We've got a leaked migration paper. We've got the round three, or the upshot of the round three talks. We've got US, um, US coverage of Davis, David Davis. And also, uh, we've got a potential announcement on the 21st of May, and we don't know what it is. 21st so, of September. Sorry, from 20, May. Yes, 21st of <laughs> September from, Miss, from Mrs. May. So... Uh, before we get into any of that, thank you very much for listening and thank you for following the conversation on Twitter. Uh, I'm at J. Beardmore. Um, Alex, where are you? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And Christian? Similar format, at GMCC underscore Christian. So if you want to leave um, any comments, please do so. Any questions, likewise. And of course, thank you for leaving us reviews on iTunes. We really do appreciate it. So there's lots of places to go from here, boys, but let's start with the leaked migration paper. Right, so I thought I'd start here because I think it's quite an interesting topic. I want to go with this question first. Why was it leaked? Yes, your question is as good as mine. Um, your answer is always as good as mine. I think there's a couple of things gone around today that it's about you know those ministers who are concerned. I'm going to forget there's a lot of the Tory party um, is concerned about the kind of severity of Theresa May's position on a lot of this stuff. Now, it looks like this paper has been written within the Home Office, almost as they're reporting to Theresa May rather than to Amber Rudd, uh, who is the Home Secretary. Uh, obviously, of course, our Prime Minister was Home Secretary uh, for many years before she uh, before she got the promotion, as it were. Um, so I think there's, there's some suggestion that those ministers who are unhappy with Theresa May's incredibly hard line are going to try and take the opportunity to leak papers which essentially will damage her position in the uh, in the public domain. You don't think it is leaked to rattle the uh, the, U- the European Union side of of the debate? I don't think it will rattle them. Um, only that it will probably confirm some of their worst concerns about the way some of the negotiations have been going so far. Um, it's probably worth... Do you, do you want to talk a bit about the migration paper, Alex, or shall I? Well, we, or how do you... Sorry, John. Well, what I was thinking is, can you just explain the differences in this migration paper compared to what has publicly been stated so far from the, from the Department of Brexit? OK, well, I guess the major one where it differs, or the major one where kind of the, the highlight, for me at least, should be being, should be being placed, is 
around essentially a clamping down on free movement um, beyond March 2019, beyond the, the point the UK leaves. It talks about EU citizens being, uh, even skilled EU citizens gaining uh, work visas only for a period of three years, no work visas for unskilled. Now, in many ways, I kind of said my position is look, there, there's two things going on here. This paper is kind of suggesting that migration policy for EU citizens after Brexit more closely aligns or even directly mirrors our migration policy for non EU citizens. And I think, as a point of policy unconnected with everything else, I don't particularly have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, and I don't really see why anyone else should. I think if we're, if we're withdrawing from everything the EU means and stands for, yeah, so actually we don't want. You know, highly preferential, much more nationalistic, um, you know, connectivity between the UK and the EU. Then, cool. Let's treat all the other countries of the world identically, and we have an identical um, migration policy for them all. I don't particularly have a problem with that. I do have a problem with the fact that our current migration policy for other nations is bonkers at a kind of economic level, at a supply of labour level, at a hassle for companies trying to get at it. Just don't let me go. So, so that's one issue, and I think we we shouldn't conflate those two things. Um, now, the second bit, though, is that the contents of the paper, so whilst they appear to align broadly to non-EU citizens, what they are in direct conflict with is what government's stated position on handling the Northern Irish border is in the paper that it published on that two or three weeks ago, uh, where it essentially not only it talks about it in the paper, but in the government comments afterwards, they specifically said, essentially, the Northern Ireland border is going to have to be a free flow for EEA citizens in the UK. We can't stop freedom of movement coming over that border because we need to maintain the free travel area. We want to maintain an open border uh, between the Republic and Northern Ireland, uh, and people are just going to have to come through that. Now, the problem is that this, this, this paper is in direct conflict with that. And also, I think more widely, appears to be in direct conflict with the statements we've sent to the EU on future citizens' rights and, uh, and movement. And that is, that's where the alarm bells within the EU. They won't, be, they won't be worried. They will be, I can imagine, Michel Barnier saying they are concerned uh, at what they're seeing. On, on, on the broader issues with this paper, though, in that it, it kind of feels like... The, the objective with it is not to necessarily limit the numbers of people coming here, it's just to limit how long they can stay. And then the issue, so that, that essentially aligns it with how we uh, act towards non EU immigrants now. But the way that we uh, handle non EU migration is notoriously bad, badly handled, and we're really, really bad at it. Yeah. And it's, so there's not going to be necessarily restrictions with people coming in. It seems, it seems to me like we're, gonna, we're essentially going to let everyone in on, on, on similar terms. But then, it, it, again, it goes back to some of the problems with the way we look after non-EU, is that the paper seems to put it that the burden is on companies to track these people. Yeah, and that's where we'd have concerns, really. Is, we don't have systems to track people, do we? We don't on the whole. We're not, well, actually, on the whole, we're, we're really quite poor at this. Yeah. Um, not only because, actually, we could track EU citizens better than we do, and we could track non-EU uh, better than we do. Now, of course, actually, non-EU citizens can't just walk through the door. Some can. For those countries we have visa waiver agreements with, um, you can just come in, show your passport, say, I'm here as a tourist, fill in your landing card, potentially saying you're touristing, potentially the address of your hotel, that's it. Mm. There's no more more info. 
if you're from a country that the UK doesn't have a visa waiver agreement with, then there'll be you'll have to apply for a visa before you leave uh, and have all that stamped in your passport when you get here. Um, so there are some additional hurdles for non-EU uh, citizens already, but we are worried, and I think any anyone who has a business or is you know, vaguely interested in business should be concerned that essentially the role of policing legal migration into the UK start the burden of that starts to fall on individual companies and landlords because we've seen this historically yes. already that landlords now have to um, do uh, citizenship checks and it does or up, right to reside checks it does throw up some kind of unsavoury scenes as well I mean there's a is it gourmet burger kitchen that was that, that, that yeah. had to mm-hmm. round up you know, a load of people which it really isn't its, it's responsibility and I think it's a really good example actually of government loading up jobs it should be doing yeah. onto business yeah absolutely and so we, you know, we, we would be against whatever the paper was saying in that sense mm. kind of regardless of anything else really I think it's, it's unfair to, it, to kind of put that burden on there it also seems heavily reliant much like the customs paper and the Irish border paper on new technologies which don't necessarily we don't necessarily know can handle it yeah. um, so there, there, are, there are mentions of things like biometric scanning and it, it kind of seems like what they're going to do is essentially set up an ID card system um, and it's just the type. I think. I think why this paper doesn't have much value is that it kind of sets out the immigration system for where we might want to be, but it certainly doesn't necessarily handle how we get there or yeah. the systems that need to be in place to handle it. And I mean, more widely with Brexit, it, we, we don't know what the transition period is going to look like. Um, the things that we've asked for around customs and it, essentially what we're going to ask for around trade is that the single. We'll come at the single, single market, but essentially everything remains as close to uh, uh, the status quo as, as possible. Um, but then also, this paper is setting out that during the transition period, we'll be able to restrict immigration in all these new ways, which is something that, from the very beginning, has been off the table from the EU's point of view. And so it, it kind of feels a bit valueless to me. It's like, here's what we would do eventually once we can get there, but at the minute it's not clear at all how yeah. we get to that point. I think, and I think this will, this might spook, it, it spook the EU is the wrong word, it'll, it'll have them worried because of course we're still in, you know, we'll talk about the, the latest negotiations later, uh, but of course we're still in the process of negotiating citizens' rights. Yeah. We're not we're not there yet. We've had the updated grid uh, this week. Not only updated from the Commission, uh, the European Commission and the UK government's point of view uh, in terms of where their positions are, but also the European Parliament. Because the European Parliament has spun up a migration advisory uh, committee, essentially, to look at all of this. They've now brought back their comments uh, on on the negotiations so far. Some of those boxes on that citizens' rights sheet are now green, so both the UK and the EU agree, and the European Parliament group agrees too, so that's okay. Some of them are still yellow, some are still red. Now, one of the areas that's either yellow or red, I can't remember which now, is precisely over some of the things that this migration paper talks about. And what we have in that is not only currently a pretty immovable position from the European Commission side about what it wants to see, you all, we now also have some written narrative from the European Parliament group looking at this, which says, in blunt terms, this is something we'll go to the wall for. Uh, this is an absolute non-negotiable as far as the EU is concerned about access rights for work that, that citizens who have who are not only resident in the UK, EU citizens that are resident in the UK at Brexit Day, but EU citizens who have ever been resident in the UK, yes. even if they are not currently, and their spouses and their dependents. Uh, now, of course, essentially, this paper that we've just seen cuts across all of that. Now, 
to help, for something like this to fall into the public domain at a point when this is not yet agreed, mm-hmm. I think there's going to be some real challenges in those negotiations now because what does the what does the European Commission believe? Does it believe the paper that's not been leaked, or does it believe what it's, we're actually putting on the yeah. table during those negotiations? It's, it's worth pointing out that the paper is, is a draft, um, mm-hmm. and that it potentially was meant to be going through multiple revisions before it was given out to the public. And all multiple revisions like that. to change its entire meaning. necessarily, but it feels to me like one of those things which was which was drafted up and then was handed around to get people's opinions on it. And yeah. I don't think it was ever intended to be uh, made public. So I want to ask one of those questions which you can't possibly know the answer to. I'm not. I'm going to do it anyway. There's at least one of these every week now. Yes, <laughs> Mul- uh, multiple sometimes. Um, just a thought. Do you think the current state of our non-EU immigration system, being as harsh as it is and as severe as it is, is a direct response to... Um, Free movement, free movement of people. So every time the government needs to crack down on immigration, it can't do on free movement of people, but it can outside the EU. Isn't the point that it, it doesn't really crack down on it though? It just yes. it just kind of people come here and get lost, and we never know what happens to them. But if I'm right in thinking, from some countries coming over here, it's not it's an absolute nightmare. But others, it's it's very easy. It, Once yeah. you're in, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, yeah. There's certainly that sort of aspect. Yeah. Now the, the hurdles to get, uh, particularly what we call tier two visas, uh, which are um, essentially you're coming in, you're you're requesting non-EU labour into the UK workforce because those skills are not available in the UK. Mm-hmm. You've got to meet uh, minimum th- uh, salary thresholds now. That's thirty thousand. Uh, now to hit those targets, I think it is. I mean, one of the things that was talked about in the in kind of the rise of the immigration debate post two thousand eight, when this really sort of got got talking in the UK, and the real sort of strength of rise of UKIP, was exactly around that. It was actually about volume of immigration uh, and share, and actually, the, you know, the, the the coalition government and the and the Tory government since twenty fifteen have talked about this kind of cracking down on immigration. We still, of course, have this target that Cameron came out with a little while ago about getting reducing net immigration to the tens of thousands. Uh, Theresa May bizarrely as Prime Minister reiterated that uh, as a commitment. Don't forget net migration is running at about 270,000 I think at the minute. Uh, it was over 300,000 uh, uh, a year ago. And it's all been about how do you reduce this. But the point is we've been able to, re- if you wanted to get net migration down to 100,000 um well, if you want to do it today, actually, you do it very simply. You just you just stop all migration from outside the EU. You mm. could clamp that system down much more. But the complaints from companies, from our point of view, about accessing non-EU labour is not about getting the volume of numbers in, but about the sheer process that you yeah. have to go through to get them in. Um, so most firms will say, actually, I tend to be able to access the people I need through this system. It's just so expensive and so bureaucratically complex. Um, and certainly as those salary limits lift, you have all sorts of odd effects about sectors who are still desperate for skills but can't get them. Because, yeah, exactly, which is low paid. And the interesting one we've been exploring today for another reason as well, but actually that salary threshold has a geographic impact in the UK. It's much, you're much more likely to find salaries over 30,000 in, in London and the South East than you are up here in the North. So actually, essentially putting a slab salary minimum in Allows firms in London and the South East to access international labour more easily than firms outside of the South East where, where wage rates are lower because the cost of living is lower. That's very interesting, actually. It's just the, the broad issue with it is that the government seems to be trying to engineer future immigration policy based on some kind of prediction on what the labour market needs rather than letting the free market sort it, sort it out. Um, and it just tends to never, never really work. No, exactly. Planned economies and all that. Yeah. I mean, 
a critic would, would, would say with net migration at 300,000 a year isn't that every two years a city the size of Manchester having mm-hmm. to be found yeah that's exactly it which is quite a lot. You know, it's it's, it's big a, population a growth. It's a lot of population growth, and it's actually the thing that's been you know, that's really been driving the UK economy for. I mean, certainly post recession. Yeah. Um, because you know we see that in the numbers. If we look at the rate of growth of GDP overall, but if we also look at the rate of GDP per capita, so how much you know, the amount the country makes divided by the number of people who live here. Is this the productivity argument? This is one of those productivity arguments. It all kind of nests nests into that area. Is GDP per capita is not growing. Quickly, in fact, GDP per capita has not moved in a decade, despite the fact GDP has grown over that time. So, it's mostly what we're doing is we're feeding more inputs into the machine, more and more people, but not actually. Each person is not adding, as it were, their share into into that. So, whilst the UK is the fifth largest economy in the world, we're only twenty fifth largest if you take GDP per capita. Is that right? Um, so there's, you know, GDP per, capita is, GDP per capita is the number we should all focus on and actually lots of us don't do it enough because that's the number that tells you how wealthy you are as a person, not how wealthy the country is overall. Now, not to get too sidetracked on uh, GDP per capita and so, 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 so forth, but the more people you have earning a, a smaller amount... Yep. Does that then not just feed into things like, well, you need to earn a certain amount before you're a net contributor to the government? It does. More, yeah, uh, yeah. More benefits, so and so forth. All of that, and I mean, this, yeah, you see, we've got to be careful. This spins off into into government policy about tax and benefit and yeah. inclusion in a tax system and should the low pay pay tax or not and the pluses and minuses and all that. And it's, it's a whole, it's a, it's worthy of a podcast for the next six months on its own. Yeah. Um, talk about all that. But it does, all of that kind of hits together. So, you know, the UK economy has grown by employing more people for less money producing less. That's how the economy has managed for the past 10 years. What is the Chamber of Commerce view on this? Because you've kind of stuck between two places here, aren't you? Which is, I mean, you obviously want access to labour. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But on the other hand, I mean, we've just spoken about it now, it might be one of the call, one of the drivers of low, pro, low, low productivity. They can't both be good. Almost certainly. I think the problem is we don't know which is the causative effect there. So it's almost certainly true that because labour in the UK has been incredibly cheap since 2008, mostly because the Eurozone economies were, were, you know, were, were really, really weak in the aftermath of the recession, and then that big kind of Eurozone crisis 2011-2012, lots of EU citizens in those economies came to the UK, very good, they've, they've supported our economy, they came to a much richer country, no one blames them for any of that. But of course, if the cost of labour is very, very cheap, then if you need to increase the output of your business, the output of your factory, you can almost do that by having more people make widgets rather than investing in in good, you know, high quality productive capacity. Yes. So why spend a million pound on a machine to get ten percent output when labour is so cheap and so available? I may as well just hire. So these two things do collide, and actually there is probably no right answer for what you do next. It's the trade-off between how you want population uh, and productivity to drive, but they're connected. They're certainly connected. Yeah, and I, th- I think just before we move on, going back to like, the engineered economy stuff and a point that you made to me earlier on, Christian, is that the, the, the policy is set out in this paper um, discriminates between what it calls low-skilled and high, high-skilled workers, um, the idea being that we're all uh, reducing the amount of people who are low skilled coming in and increase the amount of people up and make it much more easy for people who are high skilled to come in. And it feels like if you know if you don't give it much thought, that's the way around that it should be. But is that is that necessarily right? I mean, and that comes up with the argument that 
immigration it supposedly lowers marginal wage rates. You know? mm. And then you'll get people saying, you know, well, they, they come over and take our jobs, and then someone else will say, well, they actually take all the rubbish jobs that no one wants anyway. And is, is it really what we want to be letting, letting immigrants come in to take only high-skilled jobs and leaving all the low-skilled jobs only for British people? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like a rather hollow victory that um, we all the complainers. Yeah, it's, it's just a bit of a weird one, yeah. It's, it's an interesting, I think it's a really interesting one. It's just, it's just like a, a, a dynamic to the whole thing which I don't necessarily think people pick up on. Yeah. Well, we successfully avoided not going into uh, migration <laughs> policy there, so well, well, uh, well done, chaps. Um, Right, let's move swiftly onwards. Give me your reaction to the end of the round three negotiations, and in particular, uh, I'd like to talk about the format of these press conferences, which I find rather bizarre. Yeah. Go, uh, go, 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 with, go with round three first, and then we'll come back to my more trivial point later. Um, yeah, so the, the joint press conference between David Davis and Barnier afterwards was a bit of a weird one, and they basically seemed to be talking past each other and saying completely different things. Barnier looked kind of worried and concerned. David Davis, as always, was putting on a brave face and smiling and saying everything was great. Um, Barnier said, essentially, that there was no substantive progress on the... The, you know, the immediate issues, the things which they're constantly asking us to talk about. David Davis pointed out a, num- uh, a few other areas where he said that where, where there was some progress, um, but basically it seems like the, the conclusion from both sides was completely different. Um, and then it, it kind of feels like we're at a stalemate, uh, as, as I said that we would be, uh, I predicted that we would be. And then the reaction that we got from people on, on all sides was just kind of just unbearable Liam Fox saying that they were they were blackmailing us and I, the whole thing just kind of caught they all blackmailing us I mean I didn't mean that in a negative way that's basically what you do in negotiations you give me something and in return I do I do give I, I do give you something back or I don't give, give you something back that is what negotiation is it, it is what negotiation is but I, I, I don't see it that way and I don't see that we hold the strongest cards um, you know to the extent that maybe some, some of the people in government think that we do um, it, it, it seems to me that the, the EU's set out essentially what it wants to hear from us or at least wants to talk to us about and we're refusing to talk about it whatsoever and instead are trying to push things into other issues yeah. um, I, 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 I appreciate the point that you make but we are at a stalemate and the clock is ticking and it is my opinion that the stalemate is of our making at this point I, I completely agree with that um, do you think it is worth or do, do you think it is a hell worth dying on for David Davis not even to negotiate until from what we can tell the EU rearranges timetable because that's kind of what he's getting at isn't it yeah except which which actually in many ways that was something worth debating and we debated it early on in the negotiations the EU said we want to see this thing happen we talked about this before the three things Northern Ireland border citizens rights exit bill we want those negotiating first when we've made quote sufficient progress unquote uh, then we'll move on to trade discussions David Davies said he was going to have the row of the summer, quote-unquote, that that was absolutely not acceptable and that we wanted those things to run in parallel. And the EU said, absolutely not. And he said, no, we want it. And the EU said, no. And he said, oh, okay then. So we've agreed to the order. I I remember remember it well. It was on, I believe, the first day the negotiations started. We spoke about it. The headlines were, you know, day one of Brexit negotiations, Britain capitulates to the (laughs) wants of the 
EU. So they put this schedule forward and, and without arguing over it, we said, you know what, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And now we're not doing it. And so I think I've got every right to be like, well, what on earth are you doing? Well, maybe what David Davis meant is not the round of summer, but maybe the, pa- the passive-aggressive round of the autumn. Yeah, well, that's it. But of course, you know, the, the, as you know, I keep coming, we keep saying Michel Barnier line, you know, the clock is ticking. This is... Uh, but again, I, mean, I don't even I don't even put much stock in that in the clock ticking to this. I mean, I know they say that it, you know you will be out in whenever it is March 2019. Yeah, but will we? I mean, I, I, well, my, it is a matter of law that we will. Yeah, I my, mean that's <laughs> like they said. Um, uh, at the very start, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So. That's it. But if nothing is agreed, we're out. That is the ma- that is a matter of international unless, law. Unless they come to rescue us, in which case we will look ridiculous. So, <laughs> well, this I, I don't see that as a great outcome either. This is a very interesting point. I'd like to know your view on this. Um, the BBC today, uh, one of the correspondents, basically summarised the Brexit negotiations as David Davis stalling until the big European countries come come to help us out. Mm-hmm. Is that a view you have any sympathy with? I think for now, my gut reaction. Well, certainly for everything we read there is little indication that the EU27 is anything other than united at the moment. Um, now, I don't believe that they are 100% united on everything, and I don't believe that they are as united as the EU, the, EC, the European Commission negotiating team are managing, to, um, are managing to, to put across. I doubt there are massive divisions, but knowing the EU27, there is no way they're 100% agreed on everything. Yeah, no way. And there are certain outliers who we know are going to have a different view. Um, so we know that we know that the Nordic countries and Netherlands, particularly, are closer to Britain in terms of kind of a more open, liberal economic model overall. And we, we know they will miss they will they will miss us being part of that block within the EU because they will feel their voice will be will be much more dominated a by the Europe the core eurozone countries, b particularly by the French German um, power block. There are, of course, colossal political problems in Poland at the moment. Poland's in not far off outright war with political war with the EU uh, itself at the moment over a variety of things. One was about acceptance of refugees, uh, and actually we've had we've had Poland and a number of the A8 and A2 accession countries, so Eastern European countries, say they're not prepared to accept any share of their migrants. They don't see why we should. There was a High Court ruling from the EU, which I think was published either last night or this morning, which says the EU does have the right to enforce refugee dispersal uh, throughout the EU. So we'll see what we'll come back with uh, with Poland on that. So there will be division, certainly in terms of the nuances. But I think there is also a sense from certainly the major players in Europe that the EU27 has to be united on this. That yeah. has to be united from, and they're prepared to cede it. We've seen public opinion polling this week uh, from across the western chunk of Europe, which shows that actually a majority of the French want the UK to leave. A majority of the Germans want the UK to leave. Um, so you know, and you know, the, someone also commented, you know, the, we're going through the run-up now to the uh, Chancellor elections for Germany. They've had their big debates between uh, between Merkel and Schultz on TV, talking about the big things affecting Germany for the next five years. Brexit was never mentioned. 
you know, this is not a big topic in the national in the member states. Would you point out on, on those polls you mentioned that mm. currently there is more support for Brexit in France than there is in Britain. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like uh, more support for um, Scottish independence in England. That, yeah, than in Scotland, Scotland, which ironically there is. And ha- had they polled the UK, Scotland would probably be independent by now. Yeah. <laughs> on, on, on the point of uh, c- countries coming to rescue us, what I don't quite grasp is why. That argument seems to be acceptable from Brexiteers' point, points of view, that maybe this is all just a smart strategy because at the end of it, Germany will come in and say, actually, you know, we'll come to your rescue. Whereas it's, it's unacceptable if it's the EU that comes to our res- rescue when that's the body which represents all those countries collectively. Like, if the EU did come to our rescue, this, those same people would be in, in uproar. Be, yeah, 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 you're absolutely um, right, actually. And, and it, we, we, we're still seeing the point being made. In Prime Minister's questions... Uh, this week, John Redwood again tried to make the point that if we fall out without a deal, all these individual countries and the EU collectively will be hurt more so than we will. And it's it's just not true. No. <laughs> it just isn't true. But there will be substantial pain. Yes, there will be. There'll be pain on both sides, but it will be it'll be worse for us collectively. The stat which you need for this, people talk about, oh, we, you know, we run a trade surplus yeah. with Europe. Therefore, you know, we buy more from them than they buy from us. Therefore, you'll be hurt. That fact is true. We're in a trade surplus. The more important bit is about 50% of the UK's trade is with the EU. About 8% of the EU's trade is with the UK. Yes. It's a big, big difference. It's a 60 million people block against a 300 million people block. And if, and if, yeah, and if, if Germany, you know, if there are trade restrictions put in place between us and Germany, Germany can still trade with the rest of the EU on the same terms that it could before. It's, it's, it's not the same. That's we, it, we, yeah. we lose out versus 27, whereas each individual one only loses us. Mm. Um, it, it's just not like for like. But we'll see how, uh, how this develops. I mean, I think in particular interest is the Poland situation because some of the language, if you think the, the, the diplomatic language in Brexit is a little bit off. The diplomatic language between Poland and the EU at the moment is almost unprecedented. It, it, it's incredible. It's getting very little coverage in the UK press. Yeah. Actually. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that's fascinated me, and I think it sits at the heart of the big Brexit thing generally, is actually the UK media has never paid any attention to mainland Europe, <laughs> European politics. It pays attention to Brussels, and everything that comes yeah, from Brussels is evil. But it is, it is clueless, absolutely clueless about European politics. You know, I, I guarantee you will, we will see possibly first story, possibly second story on the, gen, on the chancellorship of uh, Germany and those elections the day before and the day after, and it'll vanish. You know, you, you, no, no one in the UK on the whole knows that Macron is, uh, is currently polling as one of the least popular presidents in French history. Um, that he's fallen apart. It's, you know, we've got the vision. The, the only vision we've got is the snap we got of the day after him winning. Yeah. Yeah. We've not heard yeah. any of the narrative since then. Absolutely, on to the terrible when, when he was doing all right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, we, so we're clueless about it. <laughs> once you bring Poland in, I mean, yeah, how many English people can talk about Polish politics comfortably? Well, just to highlight migrants on the subject, when is the German uh, elections? It is, we're in just a few weeks away now. Um, uh, I've not got an exact date off the top of my head, but it, it is either this month or early October. I think yeah, it's we're, October. Yeah, we're, yeah. In the, we're in the final stretch now. Because pro Europeans go, Martin Schultz is up there. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, he's he's been one of the he was one of the founding fathers in many ways, sort of guiding some of that stuff through uh, decades ago. So, so very very strong pro-European, uh, absolutely. But I mean, as is as is Merkel herself, of course. So they'll get a pro-European leader either way because there's nothing else on the table. Mm. 
Well, whereas the, um, whereas the UK press take no interest in European politics, the US have t- t- taken some interest in UK politics. David Davis was, uh, well, I don't think he was physically over there, but he was certainly commenting in the US. I believe he was. Press. No, he oh, was. He was. He yeah. was there. So th- this is, this where, does he fi- where does he find the time in his three-day week to do this? It's well, a good well, this question. This is the thing, isn't it? He, <laughs> with the, when the negotiations actually happen, he essentially flies over there for the, the opening hour. And then goes off and does all of the sorts of stuff, and then flies back to the conference at the end. So he, he flew over to Brussels to start the negotiations, and then flew to America. Um, but yes, on, <laughs> the point that we want to talk about is whilst over in America, um, he essentially tore apart the government's position paper on customs. customs and uh, it was reported in the Times on Saturday, but we're kind of both surprised that it didn't hit the headlines elsewhere. Um, it seems to have flown totally under the radar. He. Uh, he said that the two proposals put forward for future customs arrangements uh, were just blue sky thinking and essentially are not serviceable. And then he basically also admitted that there's no solution to the, the Irish border problem except for a hard border. Um, two rather large uh, You would have thought there were quite big developments coming out of the voice of David Davis, yeah. But no, I, I completely missed this story until Christian mentioned it on Monday and I haven't seen it reported anywhere else. No, me neither. It's, it's very odd. Yes, t- talking to an audience of American business people, Mr Davis said, quote, it was a blue sky idea, it being the, uh, the, the technological solution to the, uh, to the Irish border issue. Uh, continued quote, I think the most likely outcome is the practical one. Uh, and vast amounts of work are going into that. And the, what, what that means by practical one, I don't know. But for the guy who's in charge of all this to essentially say the papers we sent to the EU, we don't think will work, yeah. uh, is an interesting way to handle the major negotiation. Was he... OK, so there have been examples of politicians speaking to crowds in the past and they weren't, didn't realise they would be recorded. For instance, Mitt Romney talking about you know, that you know, 40% of the people don't pay any tax. Mm-hmm. Was this that kind of situation? Or were the cameras involved? Or, I mean, what, what, what format was he talking to people? I don't know. All we've got, all we've got I'm literally spoiled from the Times article, this is the only place I've seen it reported, uh, is talking to an audience of American business people. Is the, uh, I believe he was at uh, British Chambers of Commerce in America, or the USA Chamber of Commerce. Could, oh, yes, like it was, yes. His appearance at the US Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, public pu- public meeting, I guess. A room filled with diplomats and business people. Yeah. Again, the weird thing about this is that I, f- I feel like if someone on the EU side had come out and said exactly those things, everyone, you know, the Daily Express would be going mad about it. But because David Davis said it, it just totally flew under the radar. Yeah. You thought someone would pick that up. But. Yeah, it is odd. So, so, I mean, many, many congratulations to uh, to Oliver Wright and Boa Deng from the Times. I think really for. Uh, Forgetting that story, Shemin said it's not been picked up more widely. Now, before we started this podcast, um, you Christian mentioned something really interesting about businesses and budgeting. Um, I'd just like you to reiter- um, uh, uh, reiterate that because at the moment, all the news seems to be relatively positive. I mean, the markets are doing well. Um, I think the well, purchasing managers in, in index was up. But you think um, with everyone getting back to work? You, uh, we might see some developments in in the business in the business community. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to I guess some of the comments, some of the you know I'll say confidential discussions we've had with some businesses since the since the Brexit vote last year. 
And of course, they're, they're all, you know, they're starting to look at, they certainly, most of the big companies for whom you know, cross-border trade in goods or the movement of people around Europe is, is critically important, have already evaluated all of their options. They know what, what they might need to do depending on a number of different scenarios that have been tested as to what the deal comes out. The big challenge for a lot of them, uh, and they've spoken to us about this, is, is actually when do you start to do something? And it's a question, of course, not surprised when I'm in conversations with government or the Bank of England or Treasury, they ask, you know, where are, you know, what's the kind of gut feel on the ground for companies about, you know, what they're doing with investment, what their longer term plans might be. And really up until now, our views have been, well, look, for now, they're not particularly looking at, any, at pausing anything because actually, if everything is smooth, if we negotiate a very, very soft, smooth Brexit, then actually there's no reason for them to do much. Mm. It, you know, financial services firms are in a slightly different position because it is. It's almost impossible to imagine a world of financial passporting the way it is now. It's all, that's almost unlikely to happen. So they have, and we've seen that, Lloyd's, um, Lloyds of London have opened a Brussels office. Uh, others are opening other offices in the, within the EU just to cover their backs on that. Um, so most of them have been saying, we're not particularly pausing investment because we need to try and see more from the government position about where it would be. Now, the problem is we're now a year on, over a year on from the Brexit referendum, and we don't know any more. And this has been brought to mind for a couple of articles recently and a couple of company directors who've, uh, who've chatted to me. So the problem is now we get back to work, September, everyone starts to come in. There's a, there's a big task on the whiteboards in most FD's offices now around the UK, which is over the next two to three months, you need to start preparing your draft financial plans for next financial year. Uh, and, uh, and working out what those budgets will be. Uh, most of those companies will be finalising those budgets for board sign-off probably in February uh, of, of 2018. Now, the challenge is, for those companies who think if there's a worst-case scenario, you know, if, if we knew now that the government said, actually, we are, we are absolutely coming out of the single market, customs union, really quite a hard Brexit, those companies start preparing and spending now for, for all of that period. We don't know what that is. But companies are going to essentially have to protect their own interests and prepare for the worst. Mm. Now, the challenge is, because we know any deal is not going to be agreed until... Or the, you know, the latest deadline is on the whole October of next year, October 2018, because it's going to need some time to rattle through all the parliaments to ratify it. And the, the new world kicks off on the 29th of March. So the problem is, the financial year 1920 is too late to have done anything. You're going to need whatever it is you need in place by, next, by the end of next financial year. And for a lot of companies, that will involve significant capital spending, which means those capital budgets need to be set over the next three or four months. And so this is for us has been this focus about, A, why the European Commission has, of course, talked about this August deadline. So the October deadline, it would like to say that sufficient progress has been made, hopefully, in October. If it can't do in October, it will go into December um, before we can move on. So actually now, the likelihood of us knowing what kind of shape that agreement is going to look like in January of next year is pretty small. Yeah. So for us, actually, companies we suspect now are going to start saying, actually, we need to start allocating capital budgets next year to make ready for the worst-case scenario. Uh, so capital budgets are going to have to be set. Now, they may not be drawn upon if actually it becomes clear by you know middle of summer next year. This is kind of a lose-lose, isn't it? They're either not going to spend it and keep it in reserve, or if they're going to spend it, they're not spending it here. Yeah, or they're spending it on stuff that yeah keeps them going, but is not where they'd like to spend it. We go to, in yes, economic so terms, we go to Bastiat's window theory, uh, that actually the money gets spent, you see spending, but it's not been spent in the most productive way the company would like to have spent it. 
So actually, instead of saying we'd like to you know, refresh all our manufacturing equipment in Britain, what you say is we need to refresh all of our customs procedures, we need to build a new offshore depot in Calais, all that kind of stuff. Stuff that we wouldn't have spent in an ideal world, and that money would have gone into something else. So you know, one of the things I've seen from British Chambers of Commerce and other business groups in the last couple of days is talking exactly about this, that whilst government is looking at the EU deadlines of October and December, Business here has its own deadlines. That if we can't see clarity, they're going to have to start preparing for worst case. Right, okay, so here's an interesting one then. As a Chamber of Commerce, when you guys are talking to business out there, are you giving some sort of guiding principles saying, well, you need to be seeing this, this amount of progress, um, and if not, you guys, um, you guys need to be thinking of doing something? We never go into that much detail because yeah. companies look after their own affairs and they know their own business is better than we, we ever will. Yeah. But certainly there is that sense of we do go and talk to them and say, look, have you gen- you've considered a number of options, I hope, you know, and actually you, you can still go into companies and, they, and you find the answer is no, they haven't yet, mm. in which case the, the, the general advice is you know, get the board together and go and seriously think about this. But we do think things like, have you actually considered the worst case scenario? So lots have done scenario planning for you know, broadly the same, outside the customs union, harder, harder access to labour, some form of customs delays, small customs delays and paperwork. We're saying, actually, have you, have you sense-checked what your business would need to do in, in hard Brexit, in no deal? Right. And actually what we do find is, with the very few exception of the very, very largest global <laughs> companies, most haven't, and they are not aware of what might need to be in place in less than two years. Right, so I've got two questions on on, on the back of this then. One, how many companies are coming to the cha- to the Chamber of Commerce, or not even just Chamber of Commerce? How many companies are seeking out you know this information on on, um, on, uh, on Brexit? And the second question is, when boards sit together, say if you know I'm a board that you know, a board responsible for making you know I don't know tin cans or something. Where on earth are they summoning their expertise about you know, customs procedures and that kind of thing? How are they making these decisions? Sure, well, I think for, for a lot of the big firms who do the cross-border stuff, they've got some of those experts in-house. Yeah. Um, so you know, any, any global trading company that does lots of that stuff will have its own customs department, it will have its own customs checking procedures. Um, I think there are still challenges in, in kind of broadening their mind as to the sometimes the slightly esoteric things you might need to think about. So people have said... spoke to some firms who regularly export around the globe so they understand both EU trade and non-EU trade uh, and the differences you need you know the different things you have to hit for those but then thinking well okay so EU trade the worst case scenario is I just need to do all the shitty documentation I have to do for the rest of the world for the EU fine I scale up my customs department but basically that's it Mm. it's like yeah but outside the customs union you might have rules of origin requirements to benefit from that trade deal so you might need to prove where all of your stuff comes from. Oh, yeah, we can do that. So, yeah, you can. Can your suppliers? Ah, I see. So is all of your upstream supply chain ready to be able to handle your needs for exporting? Because essentially, you know, even the big global company like Airbus in the Northwest, you know, in its supply chain, there will be really, really small SMEs who specialise in doing one thing of a plane really, really well. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be a very, very small company. And the question is actually, is that company ready to prove all of the rules of origins on all of its sourcing parts? Right, so because if they can't pass them through to you, Airbus, for example, you haven't got the documentation you need to access 
preferential trade agreements with anyone so else. So I assume then there's a big auditing process yeah. by by these companies now. That's it. I mean, you don't want to you don't want to kind of you know do all the work for worst case scenario because you know it's potentially a huge amount of work for a very low chance outcome. Mm. But a low chance outcome is not a zero chance outcome. No. Um, and that's the bit. So. You know, do we think we'll get some form of continuity in some way? Yep, probably almost certainly. Mm-hmm. Is that does that require preferential trade? Is that within the customs union? Is that access to the preferential trade agreements the EU has in other countries? Can we surf on the back of some of those things for the other 160 countries? It's those questions. So potentially a, a UK company exporting to Brazil even though it might be affected because yeah. it no longer has access to the preferential agreements that the EU has. I think this is reflective of one of the, the biggest, the most dangerous things about the whole no deal argument for me is that a lot of the, the people and in particular the MPs who argue that a no deal scenario would be okay and that we'd get through it aren't really thinking about no deal because what they see happening is that we get to crunch time and that you know there'll be the talks will be extended and some deal will will happen quickly and countries might come to our rescue and blah 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 and so some form of continuity will be will be put in place so actually they're not saying that no deal is better than be, better than a, better than a bad deal because they're saying their imagined deal is better than the deal that we that we're they're, going to they're saying as soon as soon as the threat of no deal becomes real that, that something will happen so we'll never ha- actually have to experience no deal the problem is, as, as Christian was just explaining, with supply chains and stuff like that being so integrated, much more, pe- much more than regular people would ever imagine, is that the second that we trip over that line and any of that continuity ends and we get anywhere even close to uh, a true no deal, those supply chains will break down. And once that happens, rebuilding them m- might simply just never happen. As, as soon as, as those suppliers start switching and start not accepting our goods and things like that, Getting them back is going to be a massive, massive job. Because I mean, and there was a survey a in Germany, survey in, Ger- survey in Germany recently. I think through the German Chamber of Commerce, uh, which talked about I think fifty-three percent of German companies are already sourcing non-UK suppliers. That and that is the, that is the bigger problem because you can't get back into that. Mm-hmm. It's getting back in. So it's, it, it it kind of comes, I think, to the to the stuff we talked about before in podcasts, really, which is the simplistic view. So no deal isn't you know said that view John Redwood is one who, who harps yeah. on that sort no deal for him no deal means all that happens is we revert to WTO trade rules between the UK and the EU mm. and that all the, and the only impact of that is there will be a varying range of tariffs depending on what they are in the in the complex deal tariff of the EU it doesn't affect us we could do unilateral free trade we've explored in a previous podcast why that's kind of insane but for now put that to one side and that that's the only impact. It's just about tariff pricing, where actually it's about access to the rest. You know, mm. so you know, a genuine no deal scenario. As it, again, we you know we've talked before that it's we believe it's incredibly low risk, but absolutely no deal is certainly WTO trading terms. If we've agreed our WTO schedules by then, that has to happen first. Um, that that happens, but it is also that the fifty-two free trade agreements around the world that the EU has we now fall to the common external tariffs of those third countries. Now, tariffs globally are... you know It's correct when people say you know, globally tariffs are low and broadly irrelevant in modern trade. The WTO has been hammering those down. But not all... Co- co- countries have moved at different speeds in tariff reduction. So actually, the, com- the, the CET, the common external tariff of the EU, is pretty low. It's one of the world's lowest. 
we have agree it has trade agreements with other countries whose external tariffs are nowhere near as low as the EU's. But all of a sudden, those then become the tariffs that we are trading with those 53 countries on. So it's not that the EU's external tariff gets applied to Mexico. It's that the Mexico's external tariff gets applied. Right. For UK imports. Uh, UK imports into Mexico. Um, but then there are all the other preferential trade deals. Um, sorry, um, not preferential trade deals. Customs exchange agreements and things between the EU and other third countries. All of those break down. Um, and I think you know a lot of the Brexiters that I've spoken to has sort of said, well, you know, it didn't used to be like this. Why can't we survive outside? And the life has always been, well, we can survive outside, but you need to understand the world has changed dramatically since 1970. Mm. What the EU has allowed to happen, and I can't remember in, which blo- in whose blog I, I read this, and sorry for not being able to credit them, they, they described it very beautifully, saying essentially because of the single market, the nature of the single market, is you don't have companies... You know, we, the, the UK doesn't make something. It doesn't source its imports and make something and pass it out. It's part of a Europe-wide supply chain. So what you have crossing that border between the, U, the EU and the, uh, the EU27 and the UK is it's basically like it's one factory floor. So actually, what you're not disrupt, you're not saying this company in the UK can no longer send its goods to the EU. Of course it can. But actually, the point is, its manufacturing process, the actual product line, mm. is split across multiple countries, and it's that bit that you risk disrupting. Now, don't forget, if you talk to um, Nissan up in Sunderland for their deliveries, you know everything works on just-in-time delivery. The average time that goods, that products arrive at their factory before they are put into a car, is two hours. Right. That they keep two hours of stock. That's. <laughs> That is common across all EU supply chains because just in time delivery and logistics has moved on with no customs checks, it's not a problem, and you save a fortune on warehousing. Wow. That is the stuff that's at risk from no deal. The tariff bit is not the big diversion here. That's, uh, that's quite an incredible statistic. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's completely blown my mind. You came uh, into yeah. this one being quite optimistic, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just remind you of this. Last week, I think we unanimously agreed it's never going to happen anyway. So uh, I wouldn't get too I wouldn't get too too carried away with it ju- just yet. Um, last thing for you both. Um, I think at the top of the show I said Mrs. September is going to uh, announce something on the 21st of May. I meant Mrs. May is going <laughs> to announce something on the 21st of September, but we don't know what it is. This has come from my personal favourite Euro- um, European politician, Guy, Ver- ba- Guy Verhofstadt. Verhofstadt? Verhofstadt, yeah. Verhofstadt. Who would like to guess what this secret announcement might be? Uh... So this, I'm, I'm not sure if he was meant to say this, but everyone knows about it now anyway. Uh, he said that Theresa May is going to make an important intervention into the Brexit process on September the 21st. We have no confirmation that that's the actual date. Um, the reason why we think maybe it might not be that date is that it would push the negotiations back because the, the fourth round is proposed to happen then. Um, so it would, it would, something would have to happen. They'd, they'd have to be pushed back by a week is what we think. Um, it's only a couple of weeks as well before um, the Tory party conference. Uh, so we're thinking that this is going to be some kind of big announcement. It's, it's, that's, that's what it's rumoured to be anyway. And there are a number of possibilities. Um, first of all, people were suggesting that this is going to be some kind of announcement around the divorce bill, uh, potentially our kind of opening bid or a you know at least putting our hand out um, to say you know we want to talk about this more seriously. 
I think we find that to be a bit of a weird suggestion because why would you do that in the kind of speech in a press conference rather than in the negotiations where we're meant to be talking about that thing um, it, it just strikes me as a bit of an, bit of an odd strategy um, so so the more likely thing which, which I expect to happen is that uh, and we've seen it rumoured that this is something Theresa May wants is that she will ask for essentially rolling negotiations or certainly for negotiations to happen more frequently than you know once a month for three days uh, because progress has been frustratingly slow uh, at some point it, it's expected that they will go to twice a month but it, apparently Theresa May is much in, much more in favour of essentially negotiations being uh, rolling and on an ongoing basis which would make sense and I don't think is a, a particularly you know difficult thing for us to ask for it's, it would seem to make sense given the progress um, so I hope that that's what it is the only other thing which I, I almost feel like I shouldn't mention because it's so scary to me is um, that apparently some journalists in Brussels uh, have the opinion that what is going to be said on the 21st is essentially another reiteration of our no-deal uh, favourings and that every, you know, it's, all, it's all being considered and we're making preparations to walk away if you don't give us what we want. Um, it could be one of those things, it could be a combination of all three, we don't know. All we know is that it's, it's going to be, uh, as, as Guy said, an, an important intervention. What on earth might it be that requires Theresa May to get involved? Okay. It is odd. I mean, the government, other commentators have talked about the bizarre way in which the, the well, UK we government is leading its negotiation by press conference. We've, we've seen that. You know, the, the EU just publishes its papers and gets on with it. We hold ours and send them out to journalists yeah. and embargo them until midnight so they can catch the press. Uh, so we, there's definitely a press-led strategy from the Tory party behind the negotiations anyway. But to kind of be, you know, setting up dates that far ahead, we're still three weeks. And why on earth does Guy Verhofstadt know about it? Well, don't forget he's he's the uh, he's the lead Brexit person for the European Parliament. And presumably, so he does have an official role. If he this. knows about it, he also knows the content of it. Well, he doesn't necessarily. He may the, the the knowledge may only be that she wants to do an intervention, and they've sent the date over because it'll affect the negotiation period. But. I don't know, we've got to be careful not to stoke too much gossip uh, around these things. It could be, well, speak, it could be nothing, really. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> It could yeah, yeah. be something meaningless. Speak, speak for yourself, I'm going to go for um, European referendum number two, <laughs> uh, or, gem, or, or general election referendum, number three. Referendum on EEAF membership. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. Would, that would be a great intervention. I'd be very pleased if we got there. Oh, as, if, <laughs> as, if the, as if the electorate could work that out. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah well, let's... Let, let's wait and see. Uh, let's wrap this up, but before we do, what's going on in the Chamber of Commerce this week? It is all guns blazing at the minute for our sitting on our desk for, yeah. the, uh, for the Construction Summit North next week. So next Wednesday and Thursday, uh, joint between, uh, between Greater Manchester Chamber and the University of Salford. Uh, two full days, all looking at the future opportunities for the sector, challenges, skills, Brexit, devolution, housing, all of that thrown in. There are still tickets available, so if you're interested, our website is the place to go. And last thing, just you mentioned um, before, a couple of weeks, you mentioned a couple of weeks before the Tory Party Conference. That's in Manchester. It is indeed. It is indeed. It's only about three weeks away now. Will you um, be doing anything there? I am. My diary is pretty much full already with stuff. I think I'm talking about six events on the Monday and two on the Tuesday. More will almost certainly come in. Um, Alex will almost certainly end up doing some of the ones I can't do um, so yeah there's, there's lots going on it's here from Sunday if Sunday's the second I think off the top of my head it's Sunday the first of October through to uh, Wednesday the fourth two big days of the Monday and the Tuesday 
Uh, it's at Manchester Central. Lots of stuff is in the secure zone. If you've not got yourself a pass for that now, I think it is now too late. It's done. It's over. Um, but lots of events happening outside the secure zone. There'll be there's, there's at least one happening here at the Chambers of Commerce. Lots around the city. So uh, the Conservative Party website. They've got all the details. They've not yet published the agenda, but I'm at a lot of those events. So turn up to them and you can meet me. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you if you are interested in what a Conservative Party conference looks like up in Manchester, I recommend that you come up and have a look because some of the most spectacular scenes I have ever seen during, during, during the last one. And I'll leave it at that. I'm yeah, that's... Any more, I'll you, leave it at that. You put it very well. <laughs> All right, I'll see you next week, gents. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.